I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W, and it is April the 6th. It's a Thursday, and it's a very special Thursday. Everyone knows that means it's the start of a new year and a new season and a new everything. We'll be looking at what we've got our eye on uh, between us and what we think is going to do well and what we think is going to be successful this year. But I was looking at uh, quite a strong start from Yorkshire. But Steve, how do you feel about the start of the county championship? Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't think this is the best Yorkshire team. They're a a little bit embroiled in other issues at the moment. Well, still embroiled in other issues at the moment. I always think they kind of, at least for the last few years, there's been a tension off the actual pitch, hasn't there, and on on, on what's going on behind the scenes. So it would be nice. uh, It would be nice to have a decent year again, but we'll we'll see, I guess. Uh, Fair enough. If you're not that bullish on Yorkshire in that case, I suppose we should talk about stocks and finance and stuff instead. The county championship did start today, but uh, we'll talk about what we normally talk about. It's actually the start of a new financial year here in the UK because it begins on April the 6th, like most years do. Uh, But Steve, how's your week been? We'll talk about ISIS and stuff in a minute. How's your week been? Yeah, Merry Taxmas, everybody. That was was the call of the morning for us. Um, uh, yeah, it's been a decent week for me, Steve. Um, the stocks fell quite a bit on uh, Monday, Tuesday, a little bit on Wednesday, but they've had a nice rebound today. Uh, I've been I've been buying a lot today. Uh, I've, the whole don't lump it in strategy uh, has probably uh, it's not gone so well uh, today, but I have got some money in reserve, but I, I've probably put in a bit more than, than I maybe should have done. I've got a laundry list of what I bought, Steve, but I think we're probably going to cover that a bit later on. Um, how about you, Steve? How's, how's your day and week been? It's been a busy week. I think the reason it's been a busy week for us is because it's actually quite a short week. Uh, For some reason, all of our deadlines appear to be at midday on whatever day they are. So actually midday today was when we had to get all of our stuff kind of written and signed off for the week. At the moment, the bunch I work for that's not the university, so the foundation that I work for, are in the process of recruiting for our next year's scholars, which means we've been doing things like reading forms from very impressive people and quite lengthy application documents and trying to trying to sort them into some sort of different categories of the great from the really quite good or something like that. But we've had to get through quite a lot of those and have them done by midday today for uh, interviews in a couple of weeks' time. So that's actually meant it's been quite a compressed week. That's been no bad thing for me. I hadn't had money available at the start of the week. I'd got a, a closer eye on the ISA and that coming around. But the portfolio sort of slid down a little bit up to this week. Today was a more encouraging day, actually. I'm not quite sure why. There's been some interesting news in the housing market this week, but maybe it's just people with a load of ISA money. Yeah, somebody did say that. Stocks are pumping because of ISA money going. I think it's probably quite unlikely, quite unlikely but um, I guess we'll see. There was a short report out on um, Airbnb um, yesterday, Steve. I don't know if you saw that. I've only briefly skimmed it, so I, I, oh. I, I'd probably not want to comment on it. But uh, the short report is from the Bear Cave, who is, uh, well, it was a little-known Seeking Alpha channel until they realised he called Silicon Valley Bank insolvent uh, about a year ago. When looking at their balance sheet, so everybody sort of flooded to him as uh, the new the new oracle. So for him to go short on Airbnb at the moment is a big deal. It's dropped about eight or nine percent over the last couple of days. Uh, like I said, I've only skimmed it. I, I can't really comment as to its uh, what I think about its validity, but it's uh, that's where your Airbnb stocks have fallen from. If you are an Airbnb holder and haven't found out why yet, ah, the new Michael Burry's after them then. Mm, yeah, the new one, the Bear Cave. Mm, the Bear Cave. Good name, that. Um, okay, well, in that case, uh, let's get off the subject of probably ISA Investor just wailing in at the start of a new year and moving all the markets higher uh, onto our stuff and what we're doing. We've got sort of three questions to talk about with ISAs. 
at this time in the year, I suppose. And they're roughly speaking how we want to think about pacing ourselves over the year, if we want to do that or not. What we're kind of looking at at the moment for our buying list and how much of the, how we go about managing our portfolios in terms of allocations, I suppose. So let's kick ourselves off at the top. Steve, you sort of, you kind of teased at the idea of lumping it in quite a bit, or you said you put a bit more in than you, you meant to at this stage in the game. Yeah, so really, I, I wanted to kind of stick with the old strategy of you know one thousand six hundred and fifty a month because that um, that sort of spreads it out over the over the year, and it's the closest kind of whole number figure you can get to um, to you know spreading it out over twelve. Uh, well, I accidentally put thirty percent. I put six grand in uh, this morning, so I uh, completely blew that out of the water. But mainly because uh, I did a quick spreadsheet and I worked out all of my allocations and what they're actually supposed to be. And that was the sort of lowest amount that I could put out as like a balancing payment to try and bring things back in line and bring positions up to somewhere near where I wanted them. So in fact, for something like Deckers, I, I sent it to Steve the other day and he realised I only had about 38 quid in it. And it was because it was all I had left from the, the year before. Well, I've, I've been able to bring that up to its allocation. I think it's just over a thousand pound worth now uh, with a little bit of room to stretch that position out if, if I want to. So anything that had just a few quid in or was kind of holding positions or positions I was thinking about have now been brought up to two thirds positions and then over the course of the year, I should be able to build that out. I, I have still got a bit of money spare, Steve. I, I actually managed to free up a, a bit more money than I thought I was, but I'm trying to be sensible with it and just hold a little bit back. How about you? I am not holding back at the moment. I have decided that uh, as I get money, it's probably going somewhere, as long as I can see something that I think is at a reasonable valuation. Right? I'm not going to do something silly because I can't see something sensible to do, but... I was doing a little bit of writing earlier this week. Uh, listeners might well know that I write for the kind of Falls UK arm as a freelancer sometimes. And we try and think about what's timely and what people might be thinking at any given moment and try and say things that resonate with them, basically. Uh, and one of the things I was thinking about is it, this isn't my situation and wasn't my situation. But what if I was someone who had cash left at the start of this week? Uh, in my ISA and, and you know space left in the ISA to put it there and time running down basically what would I would I kind of do there I mean you can always roll the cash over if you deposit it for a year but I sort of think if I was planning on investing kind of on the regular what would I want and I think actually this year I'd be I'd be pretty happy if I had cash left I'm, I've got cash now and I'm pretty happy about having that available but I thought I could imagine a situation where you get to the kind of end of your uh, month that you've chosen to invest your however much in your 1650 or whatever it is you, you invest each month. And you look around and think, oh, you don't like the look of very much of this at all. But if I'm going to keep investing and keep staying regular, I have to go buy something. And I think I would find that more challenging as an investor, finding myself with cash and thinking, I don't see anything I want to do, but I'm supposed to invest that this month. Uh, and time running down on me and thinking I, this needs to go somewhere and the, the good opportunities kind of happened and I really like what I did back then with I don't know, Lloyd's or whatever it is you were buying but there's not that's not available anymore because that's run up like I thought it would run up and so on. So I've decided to be a little bit more um, I guess higher conviction I suppose in my uh, or have a, bit, have a bit more courage of my convictions I guess is the way I would put it and it's there's a reason for that that has nothing to do uh with the kind of opportunities at the moment but i've sort of decided that where i see stuff available i'm going to try and take it because the other thing weighing on my mind is that i find uh, over the last couple of years we've had a few kind of things that have made markets go in funny directions i mean russia uvadi ukraine a good example right stocks suddenly start going down um various things have caused them to rip higher but go back a little bit of vaccine if you were sat around waiting with cash at that point as i was uh, you suddenly found things looking an awful lot less attractive than they did before so i've decided that there's enough kind of exogenous shock stuff that will move a market in one direction or another uh so that i don't feel comfortable waiting around when i think i see a decent opportunity i'm going to go take it and if it goes down from there well i've got another 20 something years at the very least until i'm looking at using this stuff for retirement so i think i'll take it where i think i can see it at the moment uh and that's the way i'm thinking of going about these things it's definitely one of the things i noticed last year is that i think i had plenty of good ideas about stocks but i was only ever able to shuffle a couple of 100 quid in them here and there and um 
Uh, and and they would run away to the point where you think, okay, this is less attractive now. I mean, the amount of times I said I've written to you and said, look, this is up thirty percent. What the hell am I supposed to do with it now? I don't want it at this price. I, you know, I, I've only got a little bit of money in it, so building it out now would be, you know, dam I think damaging to the position. Building it, at the, buying it at the wrong price. So what do you do with it? And you end up cutting it. And I think if you could just have a bit more courage in your convictions at the beginning, uh, that that might have been beneficial to me last year. So just moving on to a kind of, uh, taking the third question second in that case, here's one of the reasons I think I'm minded to be a bit more um, uh, proactive when I see opportunities here, or maybe not proactive, I don't want to be in front of them, I just want to take them where I can see them. I guess when you have a portfolio that gets bigger, and I'm not saying because I'm a gun investor, I'm just saying because I put more money into the damn thing over a period of years, any years I saw... I was going to say ISA allowance, um, and I kind of like that expression, but a colleague of mine this week said she doesn't like calling it an ISA allowance because it makes it sound like it's something the government gives you. Uh, mm. And it's not. It's, it's your money that you put in there, right? But the amount that you're allowed to kind of uh, protect from from tax on gains. But, yeah, each year's kind of um, ISA allocation or whatever, that becomes less and less of your overall portfolio. So if you imagine sort of in eight years' time and you've deposited, imagine you've maxed your ISA for uh, the last eight years and you're now in year nine and you're going to throw 20 grand at something. Well, you probably have quite a lot of 20 grand-sized things. Another 20 isn't going to make your something be, you know, 85% of your portfolio or whatever, which is probably more than someone might like. And I think I'm just starting to enter the territory of thinking, I'm not going to lump it all in on one thing, and I can't lump it all in on one thing. I haven't got it at the moment, so... Uh, the policy of keep taking things when they're on offer, if the price of stuff I like keeps going down, I will keep buying it, although a falling share price means it will be less and less and less of my portfolio as it goes along. But um, I think I'm at the stage now where even if I lumped it all in on one thing, it would only just reach a kind of um, eye-catchingly big allocation of my portfolio. I think this becomes a lot easier when, you're, when you've just been investing longer. Let's not say when you've grown your, your portfolio or anything, right? I'm not going to start going on about investing results here. Just the, the period of time means that adding another year's worth of ISA stuff doesn't, um, doesn't move the needle. the needle that much, mm. yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the case. I think um, I, I'm not entirely sure what size that needs to be before it happens, but I, I do fully understand your point here. I think it is easier when... Probably when you've got a couple of million in there to just bang twenty k in something, isn't it? And 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 you know and, and make a make a move and be sure about it because in the grand scheme of things, twenty k on two million, it's not a massive move. If that was to imagine losing twenty k, Stephen, just thinking, never mind. I mean, <laughs> that's going to be a strange feeling, isn't it? I guess, but um, yeah, there's plenty of stuff moving about, Steve. That's the that's the beauty of this market at the moment. I mean, no idea if we're at the bottom or not, but I mean. There's been days uh, just this week where stuff's moved 2 3 4%, and there's no news to move it there. It's in no worse a situation than it was the day before. Uh, and, you know, every day that this goes on, we're one step better to the, the recovery and reaching the bull market. Um, so I just I just don't know. I think this, this – I mean, me and you have never struggled for opportunity. We've always found something that we wanted to buy. Uh, but especially so at the moment. I mean, I had a list of – uh, 12 I think maybe 12 or 13 stocks that I sent to you that I've bought just today nice you're busy then in that case would you like a list Steve I think the viewing public would love a list I already have a list but yeah go for oh, it okay so just today I've bought Forterra Nintendo Middleby that we spoke about last week uh, Mid-America Apartments I think we spoke about that one a couple of weeks ago uh, Four Corners Property Trust I think we spoke about that one about six weeks ago I bought Charles Swab which is a position I've just started building out uh, Deckers which we spoke about about three weeks ago Alexandria Real Estate which we spoke about 50 episodes ago uh, The S&P Small Cap 600 uh, which is an ETF for profitable small caps Then I also bought VAT Group which I did a deep dive on about six weeks ago uh, next, Entain, Euronext, and a little bit more Barclays. That is a longer list than I remembered you telling me about, actually. Mm. I'd forgotten about the S&P 600, I'd forgotten about Entain, and I'd forgotten about Next. Um, but when I first read your kind of list of stuff, I maybe I just have kind of confirmation bias in that case, but I was, uh, and I sent to you earlier, a piece that I wrote last week for the start of this week for... Um, 
full readers to have a look at. It was called Banks, uh, Bricks, Banks and Buildings, I think. Uh, five dividend stocks to buy in April. And I listed Forterra. I listed a couple of banks, I think Bank of America and Lloyd's. And I listed Warehouse REIT and Realty Income, which are not your picks in pretty much any of these cases apart from Forterra. And Forterra, that one we talked about ages and ages and ages ago. I think it was either, I think it was an episode that was just you and me, so that doesn't narrow it down very much. But it was either a stock for Paul or a stock for some month or another uh, that mm. Forterra was yours. And I remember reading, uh, looking over it very quickly as you were talking and being being quite taken with it. But it's come off a fair bit. So that very much is your pick and it's very much one that I had a look at and liked. But there's elements of the what I'm going to call bricks, banks and buildings um, idea going through your thing. Although there's plenty of other stuff too there. Yeah, it's definitely, it was quite funny, really, when you sent that article over and I swapped it for a shopping list and we were like, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh, like I've read it before. But yeah, it's definitely bricks, banks, buildings, uh, physical retail, and then um, financial institutions, really, isn't it? I think is generally what's on this list. Um, I've been, I'm I'm happy with it. Last year, when it came around to the uh, IC year, I was struggling with some of my positions. I, I was, they were not quite how I wanted them to be, but they were quite red, and they were a sort of pains to let them go when you know the market had fallen as heavily as it had. And I think I sent you this list, Steve, as well. I, I'll, if I can find it, I'll put it up for the the, the watchers. But uh, it was a list of stocks, basically, that I had as a shopping list for next year. And I, not many of them have survived, Steve. Um, most of them are averaging down and looking to get rid of them or trim them or move them to to my other portfolio. This time around, I look at this portfolio and I feel a lot happier with where it is at the moment. Um, how are you feeling to say about yours? Because I know sort of middle of last year, you were not overly happy with your portfolio. You called it a bunch of stocks. Yeah, I I think I still think it's a bunch of stocks, but I think I'm kind of okay with that. I think I've started taking a much, much longer view. So... I'm very top-heavy at the moment as a result of aggressively chasing what I think are the best opportunities at the moment. And I think that's okay for now, because when I think about where my portfolio is going to be, I started thinking this about a quarter ago when I talked about having a big position in federal realty, at least. A big for the size of my portfolio, right? I mean, you were chucking around numbers like 2 million before. I would point out that mine will not be that. I don't think mine will ever reach 2 million. I think I'll probably stop before I get there. But... um, well, actually, you never know. Maybe realty income goes 10-bagger, but uh, that still wouldn't do it. But, um, but, yeah, so thinking about the kind of position sizes here, I think of kind of where I want to end up with the size of portfolio and think, well, actually, look, if I buy these now and just leave them, the other things will catch up or I will find other things that will catch up. Uh, I've got quite a bit of a portfolio in a couple of stocks but they're not going to be quite a bit by the time I get to my kind of retiring uh, number and that sort of that sort of number. So I'm I'm not too worried at the moment. It's a it is a bunch of stocks and there are banks, bricks and buildings uh, in all of these things. They all feel like very kind of I suppose you might say counter cyclical things. They're all things that are kind of falling and falling quite sharply because of a combination of rising interest rates and the threat of a recession, I suppose. Is that part of your thinking, Steve? I know not everything you have there fits into that category, but you know, there's a there's a, uh, a triple B theme that we might call here. Yeah, uh, potentially and potentially not. I don't really try to think about what's what, what what's coming at the moment. I, I, like uh, when we'll talk about it a lot more later, but there's a lot of Howard Marks talk where he tells you that the whole macro thing and predicting macro is just a silly, stupid game to play. And I'm and I'm very much of that opinion. I mean, we, we like to talk about it here. We like to try and guess what's going on. But it's only ever in fun. We would never act upon uh, and act upon that. And, and that's the way I generally feel about uh, my portfolio. I, I like to score it for risk. And I like to check my risk against my volatility to see if I've got it somewhere right. And there are times when I'm happy to expect, uh, accept a lot more volatility and therefore risk. And there are times when I'm not happy to accept it. At the moment, I am in the sort of process of not really accepting an awful lot of volatility. But it's not mainly because of the macro environment. It's because the stocks that have dropped in, in value are great blue chippy sort of stocks that you can get at a much fairer price than I could have done a year ago. So I'm much happier to swap to these kind of stocks and then a smooth 12, even though Buffett says he'd prefer a lumpy 15. I'm happy with a smooth 12, Steve. I don't, I don't care about a, a lumpy 15. If you can give me a smooth, a smooth 12, a lumpy 15 can go and do one. Uh, but the reason I've not invested in my top stocks, but I'm top heavy as well, Steve. I've got 7% of my portfolio in Disney, 
uh, 8.37 in ASML, 8.55 in Alphabet, 9.12 in Amazon. I've been buying them really heavily for the last, it feels like maybe the last 18 months. Now what I'm trying to do is rather than sell those positions down, because again, I love to do that. I'm going to build the positions up around it to, to, to so obviously reduce them uh, in percentage in that way. The aim is to bring them all down to 7% and Disney down to 5.5%, but not by selling, by buying. Yeah, I like that. So uh, I like the idea of kind of just buying other stuff and bringing the allocation down. And that's how your portfolio gets bigger and kind of balances itself out, right? You buy what's cheaper any any particular given time for not not for whatever reason. Think cheap in terms of what it's worth, not cheap in terms of where its share price used to be. On the macro stuff, I, I kind of share that view, I think. I mean, I was I think it's Bill Mann who says this from The Motley Fool, but since I'm not certain, let's say it's Tim Byers, because I'm always saying things that he says that I disagree with. So let's go with something that uh, he may or may not have said that I actually agree with. Someone at The Motley Fool, probably Tim Byers, um, said, look, here's the kind of issue with macro predicting. So we're all interested in, say, what interest rates are going to be. Maybe they're going to go up by 0.25. Maybe they're going to do nothing. Maybe they're going to go up by more than that. Um, well, what is the stock that you want to buy today if they go up by 0.25 that you don't want to buy if they go stay flat or if they go up by uh, half a percent? If the, suppose that number is slightly bigger. Suppose that number is slightly smaller. Uh, what stock do you not want to buy today because you want to kind of uh, buy it tomorrow? Well, there probably isn't one if you're thinking of it from a kind of investor perspective. So if you're thinking about the underlying business, I can't think of a business that I think is going to be materially different with a half a difference of an extra or lesser quarter percent in interest rates. Same goes for if inflation comes in at 10.7 rather than 10.6 or something like that. I can think that the market might do stuff uh, that will offer me a better opportunity if that number comes in higher in both cases. But I'm not particularly sure as to whether I think it's going to do that, which makes it hard for me to sort of do anything. So so I quite like the idea of thinking, well, what matters here is businesses and, and focus on those and buy them at the right prices. Yes, uh, we'll come back to that in a bit with the, the sort of power bark stuff. But um, try to, I, I struggle to think of a business that I want to buy if rates are going up more than I expect or less than I expect. And and that again, just to go back to the Motley Fool, was another. There is another great thing. I think it was Chris Hill who said it. He's never ever uh, not bought a stock because there was going to be a different president coming in, and he's never ever thought about when he was going to buy a stock. Hang on a second, who's who's the Fed chairman at the moment? Do you know what I mean? They're, they're just not things that factor into people who are planning and buying and holding for a, a long time's decision. So uh, I'm trying not to think about them. Uh, it's very difficult, actually. It's one of those another one of those investing things that sounds really easy. Uh, but when you log in on a day and everything's up three or four percent and, you know, there's a rosy macro story out there, you do tend to think, well, just maybe see. And, and that, that's not the right attitude, but it's it's something you've we've probably got to work on, which is an investing thing you you're never going to get there you're always going to be improving and again we'll talk about max's podcast soon because it's something we've got scheduled to talk about but even he will quite regularly spend the first part of his memo correcting the things that he believed in the past that are now not correct uh so you know he's one of the best investors in the world and he's still learning so it sounds like we're both going for it then this kind of isa season and Going for it in in maybe some similar areas to start off with, I guess. There's a bit of overlap between my stuff and the stuff that you were mentioning, and there's some stuff that uh, isn't. But we're, we're never mind. We're not even going to pretend to not lump it in this year. Yeah, well, we'll see. I could. I mean, I said I'm not going to lump it in, but then when I made all these balancing things, I realised they still weren't quite as balanced as I want. And I had this money sat down, which I thought, well, I'll just keep that one to one side. Now I'm already kind of like, if the markets were open tomorrow, it'd probably be in, Steve. Let's not lie to each other. No, oh, I'm putting it in, and you, by the sound of it, sound like you're going to put it in and take it out and put it in again and take it out again and that kind of thing. Yeah, and splurge it all over some stocks. That's it. Excellent. Right. Um, that's just in case Paul happens to be listening to this. So, um, I mentioned The Motley Fool a couple of times in there, both from a writing perspective and from a listening perspective. Uh, we like listening to podcasts. We were listening to a few lately that are not that are not our ones. I hate listening to our one. I hate the sound of my own voice still, which uh, means that I have at least that in common with our listeners. But, um, is there anything else you've been listening to, Steve, recently in the podcasting world that's been uh, useful or helpful or insightful or interesting or fun or, or any of that for you? Ideally, something about stocks. 
Yeah, so I mean, I've been started. We'll start. We'll start with the one that's that's quickly to get out of the way. I've been listening to the Morgan Housel podcast. Um, that is uh, Morgan Housel, the the author of Psychology of Money. He mm -hmm. has started doing. Um, well, he basically it comes because he found out that his audiobook is way, way, way outsold his actual book. So he was like, "Whoa, there's like a market for my." my text being read to people essentially do you know what i mean so he has tried a podcast and he tried an episode and he said look i promise you nothing at all you know this is this might be the only episode that i ever do uh, let's just see how this goes anyway about four days later Steve, there was another one and four days later there was another one and now he's on episode five and they are fantastic they're just little um little tidbits of his uh, uh, little sort of brain farts that he have He'll come and he explains them in a way that Morgan Housel can only explain. Now, I wondered why he was doing it right now. It's His book's been out a couple of years uh, and it turns out that he actually has a, a new book on its way as well. Uh, yeah, so Morgan's new book, It's uh, I think it's due out in um, November. It's called Same As Ever uh, and it's a guide to what never changes. So there's not a lot of information about it. Seeing he only really announced it uh, this week. But there's some really interesting tidbits of information in there, especially for people who love cars. Uh, and in, in his podcast, he comes out with this just this cracking line, and it's in his book as well, to be fair. But he says, think back to the last time that you saw somebody in a Ferrari or a, you saw a Lamborghini or something like that. And, and what colour was it? And you can always think, well, yeah, I remember the last time I saw that red Ferrari that was driving down wherever it was. And he says, now, what did the driver look like? And you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah you know what I mean? Like, I tried this with the junior. So we... We was driving. Uh, we was driving to site, and he saw. He's really into his cars, and he saw this really fancy Audi, uh, some kind of electric Audi drive-by, really nice-looking car. And he said, "Wow, that car is gorgeous. I'd love to own one of them one day." And I said to him, "Was the driver black or white?" And he looked at me and he went, "I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't look at him." And I said, "See, that's the thing. When you buy a car, you sort of outwardly projecting. Look at me. Look at me. I'm so cool. I'm in this fancy, cool car." And I said, you didn't even realise what he looked like. You didn't even realise, you know, one of the most basic facets, the first thing that, that, that people spot. So uh, he was, he was sort of, I thought I had a good thought about that. But that all comes from that, the, the Morgan Housel podcast. And it actually comes from him being a, I think they call him a bellboy in uh, in America. But essentially it's the people who stand outside the hotels and drive the cars to your, uh, it's all valet parker. And mm -hmm. he, it came down to him driving loads and loads of fancy cars. But then actually when it came to the guy collecting the keys, he couldn't have told him <laughs> whether it was his car or not not so yeah it was really interesting it's got it's got loads of little tidbits of information in there he even manages to weave in a story about people uh, uh, racing around the world the first ever uh, sailing around the world thing so uh, really interesting steve but how about you what you've been listening to hey nice catchy name that book actually uh i'm planning on having a listen to the morgan housel uh, podcast it sounds like if you're recording i wish i could able to record stuff every four days and have it be worthwhile i think i'd probably say one worthwhile thing every four weeks but i guess that comes with experience so so when we're retired and doing this um and we're you know 30 years from now we'll be saying this kind of stuff and the same people will be listening hopefully that would be nice I've been listening to uh, a podcast called The Memo by a guy called Howard Marks. And the main reason I've been listening to it is because you told me to. Uh, so Howard Marks, for anyone who doesn't know, I'll just say a little bit about his kind of background because he's not someone that we've talked about on the show before, I think, at all. We've mentioned Morgan Housel and we've certainly mentioned Psychology of Money a few times as a kind of reading recommendation or thing we've appreciated. And uh, we had Chris Hill on, who was uh, narrating that audiobook. But, uh, yeah, Howard Marks is uh, the, basically, chief of uh, Oak Tree Capital, and his podcast is called The Memo. And what it is is a combination of ideas from his historic letters to shareholders, I guess, and kind of uh, more recent looks back at some of the things he said there and thinking about how those ideas relate to share prices, macroeconomic events a little bit, but he's kind of sceptical about the value of thinking about those too much, um, and in general the way the market's behaving today. So just his background a little bit then, because this kind of informs a fair bit of what you hear. Both you and I like him very much, this kind of podcast. He's known as, uh, at least on one YouTube channel that I saw, uh, the Vulture of Wall Street, because uh, he basically made his real killing in distressed debt. Um, one of his kind of things he did really well on was a company called Regal Theatres. Uh, so his idea was that Regal Theatres was in deep trouble um, and its bonds were roughly plunging. And the thought he had was, well, look, this is a cinema uh, chain, effectively, or a theatre chain. 
it owns a lot of um, kind of hard assets. So if this company does go into one of two things happens, either this company goes to bankruptcy or this company survives. If this company survives, then I'll convert the bonds to equity and away we go. I'll be doing pretty well. Um, if the company goes bust, well, they'll just sell off all those kind of assets and I'll get most of the money I'm due on my debt because I'm a bondholder. I have an early claim on, the com- on anything that comes out of that liquidation. Uh, anyway, long story short, he made an absolute killing. Uh, and that's kind of what he's most one of his most famous kind of moves. He's done very well in the kind of junk bond market, I guess, uh, where he's done less well, or at least historically done less well. When he kind of began his Wall Street career, uh, he was part of the kind of think tank behind the so-called Nifty 50, which was a collection of 50 stocks, which were basically so good and whose prospects were so impressive that you simply could not overpay for them. They were just worth it at any price. Uh, they became kind of pretty much untethered from their earnings in what we would call bubble territory, and they roughly went down 90% after he finished recommending them. So he kind of has a couple of different principles from uh, this. But the memo is his extremely successful kind of, I guess, reflections on markets and so on. Um, and I know you've been listening to these as well, Steve. You put me onto them. Uh, you like these an awful lot, right? I do, yes. So I uh, I was pawned to them by the investor way, so that, that you know I've got to pass the credit on here where it is, and mm-hmm. I'd, I'd still put it off from listening to it until uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I started I started listening to them, and essentially I thought they were just going to be Howard Marks reading his memos to me, which is fine, but I, I mean I read them myself, so I don't really need them to read them to me. But there's so much more than that. He adds he adds to the paragraphs. He sort of like expands points if he feels like he hasn't done it well enough, and even sometimes he has. Uh, like Q&A sessions with his, his, his lead writer, which helps draw more uh, more out of the text than, than usual. And he even has guests on. He had the Brookfield Asset Management guest on uh, on one of the most recent podcasts. And that was quite embarrassing, I thought, Steve, because Howard completely outshone him. It was like he knew so much more about everything. And he kept trying to sort of like pass the mic. Uh, and it would just get swiftly passed back with, well, you say this better than me. <laughs> and it was kind of like, well, he didn't even mean to kind of upstage him but i think it, it was a fairly poor showing but an excellent podcast in nonetheless um but yeah there's there's been things i love in there like I, i've just pulled this saying out steve for you that um that i i was trying to remember off air but i found it while you was while you was introducing so he says when i was a boy there was a popular saying don't just sit there do something but for investing you need to invert it don't just do something sit there Develop the mindset that you don't make money on what you buy and sell. You make money on what you hold. Think more, trade less. Make fewer, but more consequential trades. Over-diversification reduces the importance of each trade. Thus, it can allow investors to take actions without adequate investigation or great conviction. I think most portfolios are over-diversified and over-traded. It's just, he can get that across to you in such a beautiful way. He can, and it's a feature of his uh, memos, I think. And I think it's a strength of his memos that they... This is the kind of content of one of them, um, but they mainly say the same thing. They just say the same sort of thing applied to different uh, times. If you want someone who kind of has a kind of set bunch of principles that he just figures out how they apply at this point in time and this point in time and this other point in time, this is a really good example of someone who has their way of thinking about markets very clear in their own in their own head. Uh, so, my, yeah, my kind of selected highlight was basically him saying the same thing as yours. Uh, he's talking about something called the factory of the future, as he calls it, um, in his memo called What Really Matters. And he says, look, the factory of the, confu- the future uh, just contains one man and it contains a dog. And the dog's job is to stop the man touching anything. And the man's job is to feed the dog and keep the dog alive. Uh, which is, I think, kind of great, basically. Uh, and he thinks investing should work the same way, right? The point of the point of this show is more or less uh, Steve and I exist in a symbiotic relationship where one of us feeds the other one, uh, or we each feed each other, and then each stop each other doing stuff in the stock market. Except we don't. We uh, talk about gusto recipes far too much, and we just egg each other on into over trading and over diversifying our portfolios. But um how Marx has these really nice ways of putting stuff right he's got these kind of uh set of principles which as far as i can tell come down to you have to be different to the market you will only get a better result than other people if you do something different to what other people are doing 
you will achieve the same thing if you do. And this is a, a fairly straightforward thought, but it's a kind of really foundational one for him. If you do the same thing as everybody else, you will get the same result as everybody else. And that might be fine. But if you want a better result, you have to do something different. One of the things that really stands out to me and speaks to his background, I think, is this idea that everything has its price. He thinks... Uh, so think about the Buffett line of it's better to buy a wonderful business at a fair price than a fair business at a wonderful price or a great price or something like that. Um, Howard Marks, I think, probably disagrees with that. I think he thinks that if you pay low enough, um, there is a kind of business that's really, really bad, but you can pay under in it and it will be great. And that's more or less his lived experience from dealing in uh, junk bonds, right? These things are not good investments. They, in the words of Moody's, this is, I'm going to read his whole damn memos to you at this rate, um, but uh, they lack the qualities of a desirable investment. And his thought is, well, well, they might do if you pay too much for them, but if you get them for sod all and they come through for you, uh, then they absolutely have the qualities of a desirable investment. It depends, he thinks, on what you pay. Uh, his book is called Mastering the, Ma the Market Cycle, and it basically preaches the virtues of being patient and buying when sentiment, which is a big kind of thing, uh, is falling towards pessimism either in stocks in general, which it sometimes is, or in particular areas of the stock market, I guess, which it sometimes uh, does. So I guess that's how I sort of think about this, but I really enjoyed listening to some of these. Um, I've made my way through a lot of them, not terribly carefully listening just yet, but I feel like there's a lot there for me to still explore, Steve. Yeah, there is. There's a lot there, and there's a lot of back catalogue as well to get through, but there's, there's, there's actually two books for Mark Steve. I don't know whether the, the Master in the Market Cycle is his newest one. There's also the most important thing, which is great because uh, it's about 12 things, and none of them are the most important thing. They're all very, very important. So, But, yeah, it's a, it's a really good book, and, and the thing about Marx is he's got a sort of a good sense of humour as well, and that, even though he is he contains it in his letters it still comes through uh at times when you when you're listening to him so um yeah i, I really really enjoy this this memo i really enjoy the discussions i, I enjoy having it read to me and i enjoy the cues and q and a's at the end where um his writers really really good at teasing uh the little bits of information at you but uh what really matters is probably a good one to start with steve we both quoted from what really matters but there's some brilliant mm. little clips in there. i mean he pulls out uh bill miller saying time not timing is key to building wealth in the stock market and that is that you know time in the market beats timing the market um but there's just so many great things in there about him arguing with people over short-run positions and talking about uh, a consultant accusing him of not earning his fees and he said really my job is to assemble a great portfolio it's not to trade in and out of things as you know as and when it comes but yeah, he's got some really interesting points on things. Uh, he's His general rule is to look for 9% on a bond or something like that, where he's certain that the person will be able to repay the debt, or he's fairly certain they'll be able to repay the debt. And uh, the, the the downside is, is, is somewhat limited, but um, maybe because if they don't pay the debt, the assets are still worth something. So uh, he's a very interesting investor. He's a very interesting fellow. And I, like I say, I recommend highly to anybody who's looking for a new podcast. Yeah, I, I imagine all of our listeners are looking for a new podcast at about this point. <laughs> <laughs> I say that most of them, apparently, according to YouTube, don't make it to minute 37. But um, one thing I guess it might be worth keeping an eye on here, this might be one that we kind of come back to in five weeks or so. Five weeks is going to be roughly 13F season. I don't know, different... Um, organizations put their 13 f's out at different times but i think the deadline is about five weeks away mm. so maybe we have a look at his uh portfolio it does report on some of the big things like whale wisdom and data roma and so on so that could be something that we have a look at i had a very quick look last night and it's i'm i'm not going to tease too much here but it's a fascinating portfolio i think if you're worried about being top heavy in something and you're worried about over diversifying uh, understood as holding a lot of positions i think it's a really interesting portfolio to look at um i've only skimmed the service so far but i will look a bit more closely but some point in the next month or so i guess it's something i've not looked at steve i can't remember the last time we we did 13s if we've ever covered oak tree and it would probably one we should add onto the list although i am seeing a lot of energy stocks and uh it looks like carriers at the moment just having a really quick look at it so it's so definitely in a, an interesting looking portfolio just on the on the fridge on the flip of it but have you got anything else steve anything you want to add before we shuffle on no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think probably the the final thought I have on Howard Marks and that podcast is it made me want to start writing. 
uh, quite a lot. I mean, there's times when if you decide you want to write down thoughts and try and sell them to people, it can be a slog to keep coming up with stuff. But I think I'm inspired quite a bit by the way the same stuff just never seems to get old and never seems to get boring. There are only about, I think, maybe 10 to 12 ideas in all of that applied at different times. But it's a fascinating, fascinating. Every single one of them I've heard has been fascinating so far. Yeah, Housel has the same thing in his podcast. He says that in, fa- in personal finance, you know, when you're talking specifically um, about personal finance, sorry, is a broad topic. He said there's only really seven things you can say. Um, but it's the way you package them up and, and change them and, and, you know, you know, add the anecdotes in that, that, that make it different. And that's very much the same as, uh, oh, he's got a bit more top spectrum to talk specifically about things like bonds, like, which Housel's not going to touch. Uh, but it's, uh, it's an, it's a fascinating podcast and I do, I, I mean, I highly recommend it. Yeah, so join us next week when we shall be talking about the same stuff because we've decided it's okay to do that. And one of our, I'm looking forward to finding out what ideas five, six, and seven are. I'm pretty sure I've only ever had four. Yeah, well, what we'll do is we'll just stick the Middleby and the uh, Bunzel thing back on the end, and th- that'll be it. An hour. There we go. Perfect. Uh, do you have any stocks you want to talk about, Steve? Has anything been uh, on your mind lately, or should we talk about some UK stuff? Um, nothing really, Steve. Um, we did, I did mention just off air about, uh, I was having a conversation with somebody about Cineworld who thought that uh, Brandon, essentially logo, uh, was worth more than, uh, was worth something and was a reason to buy Cineworld. I think they'd forgotten the fact that they have about 60 billion in debt or something and they probably don't even own their own cinema chain. But is that something you want to talk about, Steve, or do you want to shuffle onto Tui? Let's shuffle on to TUI, because this is connected to something that I was going to talk about last week, but then we ran out of time and I decided it wasn't very important. I was going to talk about IAG, which is International Consolidated Airlines Group, better known as uh, British Airways, basically, for the UK uh, shareholders. I wanted to talk about it last week because I talked about a FTSE 100 stock I liked, and I wanted to talk about one that I don't. And uh, IAG has been the worst performing FTSE 100 stock for the last five years. It's down 60%, or at least as of last week, these stats are correct. I didn't bother updating them this time. It was down 60% over a five-year chart. And to me, it just looked like a value trap. It looked like it pretty much was 60% worse of a business than it was before. Or at any rate, I thought it reached a value that was... I didn't strike me as a screaming buy. Uh, debt had gone from £1.5 billion to £10 billion. Uh, the interest on that was taking up 72% of the company's operating income. And I thought I was going to say, well, look, I can see two ways out of this if you have debt. I mean, not that they're both realistic, but broadly speaking, you could either pay it down out of your earnings or you can pay it down by printing loads of shares. Uh, and when your interest is chewing up 72% of your operating earnings, you probably ain't going to pay much of it down like that. Uh, so I figured, okay, there's a big um, print coming. Stay well away. Was going to be. Uh, I've condensed that segment down into the space of about a minute and a half. But those are my thoughts on IAG. I could have easily picked on Tui uh, for what it's worth. Other than um, Tui isn't a FTSE 100 stock and therefore would have been disqualified. It's probably the main reason I didn't choose it, to be honest. But um, both stocks, TUI and IAG, have been doing well this year, and TUI has been doing well over this last day, specifically Thursday 6th of April. Uh, they had a rights issue earlier this week. So a rights issue is basically printing shares and selling them at a discount and offering your shareholders the opportunity to uh, take advantage of those rights before they go on kind of public offer. And TUI were offering an 8 for 3 uh, share uh, rights issue. So if you own three TUI shares, you get the chance to buy eight more at a discount to the price. Um, and they were doing that to pay down a loan to the German government, basically, because their debt was also pretty badly out of control. Anyway, rights issue happened, stock went down and so on. Um, in doing that, they have managed to, I think, basically take the hit there from their debt. And they've brought their debt down by, I think, about 80... Uh, million or so down to about 90 uh, million now and that's a much more kind of or the interest payments sorry on their debt have gone from 80 million uh, from gone down by 80 million to 90 million so down from 170 to 90 uh, but their share price has gone up 10 percent today and it's been a good day for uh, uk stocks in general unless they're called for terror um and they've gone up a percent or so which is a lot if you're the FTSE 100 that's like three years worth of gains FTSE 250 has done the same but TUI is up around 10%. It's dragging the market higher this time rather than sandbagging it. And the reason is they're looking quite optimistic about things. They 
uh, are in a situation where they see demand for Easter holidays, in particular the kind of shorter whole package holidays they do to places like the Balearic Islands and Turkey and so on, what they call guaranteed sun, insofar as such a thing exists, but you get the idea, uh, that's back at pre-COVID levels. So there's money coming in. They've managed to get away with increasing prices to try and offset some of their high kind of inflationary fuel costs and so on. Uh, and the stock is up 10% today. It's still half where it was in 2019, so it doesn't show much sign of getting back to those levels anytime terribly soon but it's up 70 percent since the start of the year um having seen that rights issue happening i had a, a big objection about tui which was there's too much debt in this company to be of any interest to me okay now they've taken their hit on it and their share count is much higher um i now look at the kind of company and think well that's in better shape than it was before okay there's a lot more shares to it but it's i'm no longer worried about it kind of hemorrhaging money via interest payments I'm not interested in this, uh, Steve, but I guess a couple of questions. Do you think you could get interested in a stock like this if it managed to repair its balance sheet? And do you think a similar thing might be coming for IAG, i.e. a, a kind of um, rights issue uh, followed by a jump because the thing looks much more stable now? I mean, potentially. Um, it's really tough to say. Pui is not a stock that I've ever really spent any time looking at. My only kind of like... And I mean, a thousand mile uh, uh, view of Tui is that all I ever hear about them in the news is that they're doing a rights issue. Uh, I think I seem to remember them doing one just after the pandemic as well, which obviously uh, wasn't enough because they took state aid as well. And um, and now they're doing a rights issue to pay back the state aid. So I, it, to be fair, I'm just reading through the rights issue now. They've explained it very well on their, their site. If anybody who hasn't quite grasped it from what we're saying, it, it is worth just nipping over to their website and reading it. But um I I don't know, Steve. Is this is it something that would be interesting? I'm not sure it's interesting to me. It's not really a sector I really have much love for. I don't think it's of interest to me, and I feel the same way you do. It feels a lot like an airline, which I tend to avoid. I know it's not strictly an airline. There's other things going on as well. Here are a couple of thoughts for you. Your point about their website and the rights issue, uh, I entirely agree with. I think... Uh, I think when I read about it on their website, I thought they were very fair uh, and very upfront and very honest with their shareholders about why they were doing it, what the likely impact of that was going to be in sort of fairly non-speculative terms, right? Not as in share price going to go any which way, but look, here's what we expect to happen to the balance sheet. Here's why we have this debt. Um, I, I, if I were a TUI shareholder, I would think I'd been treated very fairly uh, as a result of this. They're making a decision they consider to be in the company's best interest. You can agree with them or disagree with them, but I thought this was good communication from that management team. It, <laughs> I kind of also think, as I'm not a TUI shareholder, and maybe this is slightly mean, but to your point from before, their share count has gone up an awful lot during the pandemic. And again, this isn't to blame them for that. I don't expect companies like that to be hedged for a pandemic particularly, so I expect them to get hit hard with that kind of business structure. But I mean, maybe it's the case that they've had so many rights issues now they've kind of got the hang of how they work and how to communicate them to people. And that's not really the sort of thing that you want to have large amounts of practice at doing as a, a company. But I wonder whether that's got something to do with it. They do love a kind of rights issue because it's what they have to do, having taken on a lot of debt as well. Yeah, they've had plenty of practice. You're definitely right. Yeah, I do. Like I say, I, my only sort of knowledge of Tui, and I'm surprised it wasn't the news, the, the news release uh, below this this one that it was the previous rates issue because they they really haven't had uh, an awful lot to shout about recently. Um, I'm just looking at the, uh, the 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 discount now is almost forty percent, Steve. So that's a huge discount uh, for 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 people buying, especially when the share price has already fallen from about I think about twenty one euros to six now or, or whatever it is uh, but i'm looking at the rates as well Stephen. the rates have actually fallen by about 70 percent which makes me think i wonder how uh, if this is actually going to get fully subscribed or not or whether they're going to get just some of it um i haven't seen uh, there's nothing on their website to say that it is fully subscribed or not that i can see uh, no so i didn't see anything about that either and i wondered the same thing because the impact on that debt does well, it depends on it being at least well subscribed. Obviously, the more subscribed it is, the more the debt comes down, the more the dilution happens. But if you're TUI at this stage, you are playing for maximum dilution and maximum debt reduction. You're not doing this to have it kind of half work. 
Mm. Yeah, this is a this is a thing. I wonder how the share price reacts if it doesn't get this full thing because it's an acknowledgement that the balance sheet is weak and that they need money. And if they don't get the money, I don't think this share price is going to rebound to sort of like make up the level in the middle, Steve. And that's that's not a good thing. No, I suppose it's an interesting thought. The rights falling quite sharply because unless I'm reading this completely wrong. The rights get more valuable as the share price goes up, right? You have the quote-unquote right to buy these shares at this price. Well, very nice thing to do would be buy them at that price and then sell them at the 10% push share price uh, that you got them at because the rights are sold at a discount to where the shares were on, I think, or middle of last week or something like that. Um, So that's kind of interesting to me, and I do wonder whether this might not get fully subscribed or whether this might be for someone a bit more enterprising than me uh, a kind of neat arbitrage opportunity here. Yeah, potentially. It's it's definitely not something I'm. I think I could get my head around. Again, I I it's the same as you. The the only way we've ever ever thought about playing this airline industry was through Echo, I think, and they've got a big old pile of debt as well. So, I uh, just uh, Air Cap, sorry. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I just wonder. I wonder. I mean, I'd be interested to hear if anybody's holding it. Uh, you know, who, who's listening? If they could give us a quick why you're holding it and, and if you're subscribing and why you're subscribing and what you expect from it in the comments. That would be, be really interesting to us because, again, it's not it's not a sector we're particularly hot on. But, Steve, have you got some more? Here's my closing thought on this, and it has nothing uh, particularly to do with TUI, but it's a general thought about how I evaluate stocks. I've been, in my head, quite quick writing off TUI, and I think for pretty good reasons. I think that big pile of debt is a legitimate concern. Uh, there's a dilution coming. All of that is fair enough. I read the other day uh, someone just saying, look, on the other side of this rights issue, this company has a lot going for it. Demand is strong. They're increasing prices and demand is not going away. That's a sign there is kind of genuine pricing power here. They're offsetting their costs fairly well. That's the kind of point that would have been entirely lost on me uh, a week ago. I would have just looked at it and said, big debt pile, not interested. Which does mean that I start to think, well, now that that debt pile has gone away, my only real argument against this awful, awful balance sheet uh, and so on has has kind of evaporated with it. It's nowhere near a buy uh, for me at this point. Uh, uh, I'll come back to them when they start making bricks or running a bank or something. Uh, But um, I am kind of thinking that there's a lesson in this for me as when I kind of think about stocks and analysis, basically. And that's, I suppose, the theme of... um, the last half an hour or so when we think about Morgan Housel and Howard Marks and and this one, um, I'm not particularly interested in it from a buying perspective. I am interested in it from a perspective of trying to make myself a better investor and no more stuff. Yeah, I think it's one of those ones that, uh, I, again, it's just one of those ones maybe just stick on your watch list, but for no reason other than just to see what happens, I think. Um, it's an interesting move. I think, like you, just looking at the balance sheet now, it looks... It looks like they need a rights issue to clear some of that debt. And the, the worst part is, is it looks like it's only going to half it. So uh, it does look more manageable. Uh, it, it looks more manageable on a company that makes money. Tui is not one of those companies at the moment, but they have had a pretty hefty amount of debt sort of weighing down profitability. So it's one of those sort of swings and roundabouts kind of things. This might actually be the thing that saves Tui if demand returns in the way that they are trying to tell us that it's it's going to um, it's going to return. If it doesn't return, then this is just going to be a slow grave for, for Tui. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out, I guess. But uh, I think we're pretty much good to leave it there for this week. We've talked about a lot of stuff, mostly to do with ISAs and podcasts and airlines. But uh, if you're interested in any of those things, do let us know. What are you doing with your ISA? Are you planning to lump stuff in or are you going to take it a bit slower? And if you've got any stocks you'd like us to look at or want to tell us that you're interested in, we're always very, very interested to hear about them. Uh, but that's our show from Steve and me. We will see you next week.